Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, June 16th, 2023. Today, as we do every week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Best-selling author Elizabeth Gilbert has withdrawn her forthcoming novel, The Snow Forest, which was set to be published by Riverhead in February 2024. The author of Eat, Pray, Love reacted to online complaints over the novel's Russian setting from Ukrainians. Gilbert's decision prompted free speech advocates to issue statements of concern and has left many other industry pundits scratching their heads. Yeah, a really interesting decision by bestselling author Elizabeth Gilbert, who, as you say, had her forthcoming book, The Snow Forest, listed on the Penguin Random House website, Penguin Random House of course, uh, owns her publisher, Riverhead. Riverhead is an imprint of PRH. Anyway, a week later, the book was deleted from the site after the book and the author were targeted apparently by pro-Ukrainian internet users. As my colleague Sophia Stewart reports, uh, the action comes after more than 500 people rated the book with one star on the popular book review platform Goodreads, with nearly a third also leaving critical, or I guess I should say negative, uh, reviews. Worth noting that many of these comments were, of course, not specific to the book. Of course, the book isn't even out yet, with one star rater, for example, simply declaring that I hate and will always hate Russians. So that's kind of what we were dealing with. The professed concern of many of the critics is that the book, which is set in Russia, might somehow romanticize Russia in the midst of, you know, Russia's heinous war against Ukraine. I don't think that that is, of course, likely, as the catalog copy notes that the novel actually takes place in the 1930s and the 1980s and is set in a remote, high-altitude corner of Siberia. And it's about, apparently about, a family of religious fundamentalists who, uh, this from a video message from Elizabeth Gilbert herself, made a decision to remove themselves from society to resist the Soviet government and to try to defend nature against industrialization. Nevertheless, in a statement, Gilbert acknowledged this massive outpouring of reactions and responses from Ukrainian readers who expressed sorrow and anger and pain, that, and she decided to make a course correction. She removed the book from its publication schedule. It's not the time for the book to be published, Gilbert said, adding that all pre-orders would be refunded. Freedom to write advocates have criticized Gilbert and PRH for bowing to this pressure. Yeah, a wide array of authors and writers and literary critics and advocates all voiced concern about the precedent that Gilbert's decision might set. Uh, an editorial in The Atlantic, for example, repudiated what it called Gilbert's, I'll quote him here, wrongheaded attempt to help the Ukrainian cause. Uh, and in a statement, uh, PEN America CEO Suzanne Nossel acknowledged that the decision was well-intentioned but regrettable. And I'll quote her here, too. Let me pull up her statement. Uh, she writes that the idea in wartime, the creativity and artistic expression should be preemptively shut down to avoid somehow compounding harms caused by military aggression is wrongheaded, Nossel said, adding that the publication of a novel set in Russia should not be cast as an exacerbating oppression and urging Gilbert to reconsider lest literature and creativity become a casualty of war. And look, I certainly understand these concerns, and I'm actually of two minds here, right? I'm really happy that there are advocates like this standing up and voicing these concerns for the freedom to publish. At the same time, I totally understand the position that Gilbert and her publisher have taken. So how do you make any sense of this decision to withdraw the novel? 
Yeah. So, you know, as to whether the book would hurt Ukrainians or hurt the Ukrainian cause, it's really hard to see how that would be. But it's hard for me to say that, too, because my home is not being terrorized by Russian forces, right, with Russian missiles slamming into, you know, the city where I sleep every night. So whether going after the book is a a good strategy or a bad strategy to support Ukraine or the Ukrainian cause, I just don't think it's my place to say. But I get it. And let's face it, it happened, right? And as any author or publisher will tell you, this period running up to publication with pre-orders is a crucial moment for a book. And this pre-publication rollout was effectively derailed by this campaign. Uh, In a statement, the Authors Guild backed Elizabeth Gilbert in her decision, noting that every author has the right to decide when and how they want to publish their work. And the Authors Guild actually lauded Gilbert's empathy for her readers in Ukraine, which I'm sure that's a big driver of this. Uh, Gilbert said that she doesn't want to add to any harm to a group of people who have already experienced and are continuing to experience grievance and extreme harm. So I think it's kind of a tough call, right? You know, we're talking about a book, which again, no one has read, that is now piling up these one-star reviews on Goodreads and you're getting these headlines, which make it very, very hard for the publisher to get its own narrative about the book out there. And it's very hard for the publisher to actually accurately assess demand and do proper publicity and to set a proper first printing for that matter, when you know, you've got this action taking place on Goodreads and you're getting bad reviews and pre-orders are suffering. And all of this action, of course, also pretends even more action, like a potential boycott even. So you know, I think clearly this decision for Elizabeth Gilbert is about not wanting to further harm Ukrainians. But the fact is also, you know, a week or so in, the pre-pub rollout for this book is already trashed. It's already wrecked. So I'm sure. Elizabeth Gilbert and her publisher believe strongly in the freedom to publish. At the same time, this is your book and you want it to succeed and to be read and you get one shot to launch it. And it's perhaps the most critical period in your book's life cycle, right? Getting the pre-orders right and all this stuff. So there's a very practical publishing concern too in the middle of this tragic an awful and emotional situation, this war in Ukraine, right? So I am sure that the book will be published. Someday we will see this book, but I'll just go back to Elizabeth Gilbert's words. She says, it's not the time for this to be published. A looming merger of publishing houses in France may have major implications for the global publishing business. Vivendi's acquisition of Lagardère now has the necessary government go-ahead. Yeah, so late last week, the European Commission approved the deal. Uh, There's been a lot of wrangling there. And this will see one French conglomerate, Vivendi or Vivendi, depending on where you are, uh, acquire another, Lagardère. Vivendi's properties include the major French book publisher, Editis, while Lagardère is the owner of Hachette Livre, whose subsidiaries, of course, include the Hachette Book Group, one of the big five publishers here in the U.S., But in order to win approval for the Lagardère purchase, Vivendi has now agreed to divest Editis, which it just bought in 2019. Uh, Vivendi said and is confident that it can actually finalize this deal by the end of October. And when it does, Vivendi's employee count is going to rise to 66,000 employees, up from 38,000 at the end of December 2022. Uh, The acquisition is going to give the company a much stronger presence in France and Spain and the U.K., uh, and U.S. annual revenues are projected to reach pro- approximately 17 billion euros. This based on 2022 results compared to around 10 billion today. Uh, in a release, Vivendi said the acquisition is going to align the group's strategic objective and expand its international presence. And it's going to enable it to become 
the world's third largest publisher in the trade and educational market. So it's a huge deal on the international front. And it certainly serves as a reminder that, uh, yeah, we could probably see a bit for Simon and Schuster in the coming months too. That that has not gone away after uh, that the deal to be acquired by Penguin Random House was scotched uh, last year. Uh, many observers believe that a uh, a buyer could come from overseas. So suffice it to say, the players at the top of the international publishing chain are making moves. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker has signed a first-in-the-nation law to discourage book bans in Illinois libraries. Yeah, it's a move that's garnered national headlines, right? Uh, J.B. Pritzker signed this bill, it's known as HB 2789. It's, it's a new law that many reports I've seen have said bans book bans. Well, it doesn't quite do that, of course. But what it does do is condition state grant funding in Illinois for libraries on adopting the American Library Association's Library Bill of Rights or a similar written policy that would, among its provisions, protect books and other resources from being prescribed, removed, or restricted, this from the ALA ALA Bill of Rights, based on partisan or doctrinal disapproval. Now, most public libraries in the state are funded largely at the local level. State funding, however, is significant. According to a press release, uh, Illinois Secretary of State's uh, office said that it awards 1,631 grants to Illinois libraries, at least it did in the last fiscal year, totaling more than $62 million. 97% of those grants go to public and school libraries. And I think the hope is that the risk of losing these critical funds will dissuade Illinois libraries or communities from urging their libraries to ban books, you know, the kind of book bans that we're seeing uh, in large numbers nationally right now. Um, Something worth pointing out, too, is that the bill was signed with great fanfare at a ceremony at the Harold Washington Library, the Chicago Public Library's main branch. CPL Commissioner Chris Brown was on hand, uh, along with lots of lawmakers and civic leaders. The mayor from Chicago was there, as well as the officials from the ALA. And the event really made quite a statement. This in contrast to what we're seeing in other states where new laws are being enacted that critics say would actually you know, force librarians to censor their collections under the threat of criminal prosecution, right? Laws in Florida and Texas and, of course, Arkansas, where a coalition of 18 plaintiffs, including publishers and authors, are now suing the state over its new harmful to minors law, uh, which critics say will, will force librarians to censor collections. Um, In his statement, Pritzker had some blunt words. Here in Illinois, we don't hide from the truth, he said, uh, adding that everyone deserves to see themselves reflected in the books they read, the art they see, the history they learn, and that in Illinois, lawmakers are really showing the nation what it looks like to, and I'll quote him here, stand up for liberty. Now, I really can't overstate how important it is to hear those words from a governor and to see a ceremony like this. And it really is a position that J.B. Pritzker has embraced for some time now. Our listeners might recall that in his State of the State address in January, Pritzker actually called out this wave of book bans that we talk about on the show quite a bit, calling it a virulent strain of nationalism led by demagogues who have embraced censorship. And it's worth noting that at the ceremony signing this law, he doubled down on those remarks, uh, noting that the argument for banning books always begins with the claim that it's about protecting the children, uh, but it's always in the end just a cover for people who are looking to marginalize other people and ideas and facts that they don't like. Regimes ban books, not democracies, the governor said. So some good news on the book ban front this week, right? Because this action is kind of what we need. At the same time, I have to throw in a little comment. I'm not 100% sold 
on that, this idea of tying book bans to library funding or tying anything, excuse me, to library funding for the simple reason that there also is this rising chorus of right-wingers who wanted to fund libraries. So is it possible that in some communities you'll see local leaders defy the law, forego the state grants, and then use this as a pretext to start shutting down their libraries? Uh, I hope not. Let's hope not. For now, the law which takes effect next year in the statements of support is another positive sign that more than two years into this politically motivated wave of book bans, that we're really finally seeing a proper and organized response. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on CCC's podcast, publishing consultant Martin Delahunty of Inspiring STEM was reminded recently of a 2019 article he wrote wondering whether writers could be replaced by robots. That was a long time ago, in robot years at least. So I asked him what his answer was then and whether he might have changed his mind over the last four years. Four years on, I think my opinion, it still hasn't changed. However, the challenges uh, with regard to AI-powered technologies are now much more apparent. And I I think what we're seeing is a a growing consensus amongst those creating and using AI is that it just remains a tool. It still requires human expertise and skilled use. But the warning I would give is that AI may not replace you, but a person who uses and is skilled in using AI could. Advice for publishers on AI. Next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to this program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening.